When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey YA is sponsored by TBR, Book Riot subscription service offering reading recommendations personalized to your reading life. Want a great new YA book to read but overwhelmed by all the publishing buzz? Let us help. Tell TBR about your reading likes and dislikes and what you're looking for and sit back while your bibliologist handpicks recommendations just for you. TBR plans to receive hardcover books in the mail or recommendations by email, so there are options for every budget. TBR is produced in partnership with Print, a bookstore in Portland, Maine, so you can treat your shelf and support an indie too. TBR is also available as a gift. Visit mytbr.co to sign up today. That's mytbr.co. Welcome to Hey YA. From great new books to favorite classic reads, from news stories to the latest in on-screen adaptations, Hey YA is here to elevate the exciting world of young adult lit. Hey YA is a book riot podcast hosted by me, Kelly Jensen, and today I have a super special guest. We are mixing it up a little bit and you'll see why. We are recording on Monday, July 6th, 2020, and... I'm just going to dive in and say this was a last minute decision to do this. But after watching The Babysitter's Club in one sitting, which is absolutely not a thing I ever do, longtime listeners will know I don't have attention span um, for that kind of stuff. I knew I needed to talk about the adaptation of the series, and I wanted to talk about it with another book lover who happened to be a guest on the annotated episode I did in. 2018 on why the Babysitter's Club series endures, which I'll link to in the show notes so you can revisit that. And so I am super excited to welcome my friend, Ama Marfo. Do you want to uh, tell listeners who you are, what you do, what you like to read, your history at the Babysitter's Club? Like, let's talk. Sure thing. I can't tell you how excited I am to finally have somebody to get to talk to about this. Um, It's mostly just been me trying so hard to slow my way through it and just not succeeding at all because I was so excited. (laughs) But hi, everybody. My name is Ama Marfo. I am a speaker and facilitator. So under normal being allowed outside circumstances, I travel around the country and talk to students. I talk to corporations about things like leadership and creativity. Um, I'm also a culture writer for the Interabang, which is a comedy criticism website based in New York. And in general, I just love talking about pop culture, especially books. And it's been really fun to kind of have this sort of conversation and start to think about the show within that context. Right now, I am reading, um, obviously, Stories from My Timeline by Akila Hughes. Mm. And I just finished uh, Jasmine Guillory's Party of Two. So I'm trying to 
build reading back into my daily routine. It's been something that once we went into shelter in place was really difficult for me to do. So I'm just now coming back to that being a daily practice. Talk to me a little bit about that before we dive into the show. Like, what does it look like for you under like non-quarantine circumstances to build it into your everyday? I know listeners love hearing about readers' lives, like how they weave it in there. And I know I do because it took me forever to get consistent in how I read. So I'd love to hear a little bit about this. Well, I realized there was a dead maybe hour to 90 minutes in like the middle of my evening where if we were doing our regular outside lives, I would be going to shows or hanging out with friends. And I was just filling that time with garbage TV, most of which I'd already seen. <laughs> um, so for me, it was about saying, all right, 8 to 9.30 at night, like this is your book time. So what's something that you've been holding from the library that they're not charging you fines for, but you should probably just get done with? Or something that you've bought that you have sitting on your shelf and now want to dig back into. So some of it's been ordering new books. Some of it's been addressing some of those ones that are on the shelf. And it's like, why haven't you read this already? So deciding that there's a time for it and then just leaving it in my bed or close to my bed so it's there when I need it has been helpful in kind of reflexing that muscle. So do you read in bed then? I do. Yes. And you don't fall asleep? No. It's very odd. Like, I've never been one of those people that can fall asleep during like a TV show or a movie or a book. I don't know why that is, but it's fairly effective for me to just say like for the time that you're reading, if you're in bed, you're just not going to fall asleep. And I practically never do. That's awesome. I'm that person who like the minute a movie is on, I'm asleep. I don't know if it's just because I can finally like turn off the thinking brain and the rest of my body's like good night. But I have the same experience when I read in bed. I can I can make it for a little bit. And I find even like lying down on the couch, I can make it for a little bit before my body's like, you need a nap, not reading time. And so I'm jealous of that skill. I don't know how I cultivated it, but it is, I mean, if it's a skill, I should probably start telling people that. I guess I never really thought of it that way. <laughs> I think it's a skill. Like that is, that's awesome. And it's awesome that you found this chunk, of, like an hour and a half is a good chunk of time every day to be like, this is reading time. It is. And it's been interesting because there are some things that I want to take my time with reading. And it's funny, like, even especially with Party of Two, like I could sense myself getting further in the book than I wanted to. So at some point I had to like stop and switch to something else. Mm -hmm. Frankly, not unlike what I did with this show, wherein I was like, I don't want to blow through it too quickly. <laughs> Slow down, pace yourself, pick <laughs> something maybe to break it up. Um, but yeah, when you're enjoying something that much, sometimes it can be challenging to not blow your way through it. Right. And I think too, like that might even be more the case now when there's so little that's really, I don't want to say lighthearted, but feel good. And so you like, you want to go through it because you're like, I really like feeling good. But at the same time, you're like, I don't want to get all the way through it because I like feeling good. And I'd like yeah. to stretch this out. So let's, I'm going to hit our first sponsor and then let's dive right into talking about the show because we're going to talk about it for a while. Yes. Our first sponsor is Flatiron Books, Publishers of Mirage by Samaya Dodd. Cinder meets Shatter Me in this immersive and captivating fantasy about a poor girl who must become the body double of a princess of a ruthless empire. Christian Science Monitor says if you love the wrath and the dawn and children of blood and bone, Mirage will captivate you. And Entertainment Weekly says a beautiful and necessary meditation on finding strength in one's culture. That is Flatiron Books, Publishers of Mirage by Samaya Dodd. And I really like this book. This was the first 
in a series. The second book comes out in August, and it's a nice blend of fantasy and science fiction. So if you like that, pick this one up. All right, Babysitter's Club Screaming is what I wrote down like on the agenda. And (laughs) so so for listeners who aren't aware, the new adaptation of the Babysitter's Club hit Netflix on July 3rd, and it's a 10-episode series. Episodes are between 22 and 25 minutes, which is my ideal timeline. Anything longer, and I can't do it. So I sat down with my friend. We had just tie-dyed t-shirts. And we're like, well, we have to wait for them to dry. That's like six hours. We didn't plan on watching all 10 episodes. But after you finish the first one, it was hard not to be like, all right, next one. All right, next one. It really was. Like, I started and did not want to stop and just knew that if I was going to save any for during the weekend, I kind of had to stop, switch over to something different. But I I can't imagine doing that. So kudos. It was very difficult. (laughs) It was like, and my friend who was with me said she was never really into the Babysitter's Club, which is, you know, totally normal. It's not everybody's jam, but she loved the show. Oh, good. Yeah. It was just sort of this feel good, but not saccharine series. Yeah. And I don't know, it scratched an itch I didn't really know I had. I mean, I knew I was going to want to watch it, but it delivered even better than I sort of anticipated that it would. I'd agree. Yeah, I wasn't really sure what to expect. And then earlier in the week, as I was kind of doing other work, the reviews started popping up. And I was really curious, because I think about the fact that the Babysitter Club audience, yes, there are things that are built in it for the adults that grew up with it, but ultimately it's a kid's show. Mm -hmm. So the idea of it being reviewed by places like The Hollywood Reporter and Vulture was nerve-wracking for me, because Me, loving the series, wanting everybody to love it as much as I do, I was really concerned that those critics weren't going to get it, and then it was going to end up getting bad reviews as a result. It's not actually unlike some of the criticism that I do around um, black art and things like that, and then having white critics review it and not get it, but also saying, it's not for you. So yeah, there was this big line of defensiveness I went into those reviews with, but even they really liked it, and that was really encouraging. Was it the New York Times? I can't remember. I didn't, so I don't like to read criticism of stuff before I actually read it or or watch it, just because Mm -hmm. I like to go in with a fresh head. And sometimes, like, as I start it, that's when I'll start to read the reviews and criticism. Like, are people thinking what I'm thinking about it as I'm thinking about it? Yeah. This one, I went in fresh and then did like a quick Google search for something unrelated. And I believe, was it the New York Times said something to the effect of like, it was so good, there's no way there won't be a second season because there's so many classic storylines. I think it was them, yeah. Which like, it got reviewed in the New York Times. Yeah. Bananas. Totally bananas to me, you know? Yeah, it was wild to me just how many outlets kind of found space for it. Like ones that I really didn't expect. And that was encouraging to me. I I do think that, well... I don't know if I'm going to speak out of turn and say that I really hope there's a season two. I'd be very surprised if there weren't, Mm -hmm. just kind of watching the numbers go up on Netflix and seeing how many outlets really, really, really liked it. Well, and I do think that one of the things that really, really stood out to me, and I saw some commentary on that I found interesting, is that all of the, the seventh graders looked like seventh graders. Yes. 
I loved that. Me too. It was very much like this is a show for that middle school and younger because the thing is younger kids are going to watch up. That's what we did, right? Mm -hmm. And I saw so many people talking about how when they read the series as a kid, they thought that all of the babysitters were high schoolers or like looked older. And then when they saw the casting, it was jarring to them. And all I could think was that's that perfect example of when you're younger and reading up, even if it's a couple years, you have these visions that they're like way older. And then when you're older watching it, you're like, they're so young. Yeah, I I definitely had that feeling too. And I for me, I sort of wondered if some of that was related to the movie version, which mm. when it came out in 95, like I was prime age to kind of watch it based on what I had been reading. But the cast ages for that were all over the place. So some of them really were 13 or 14, but some of them were 17 or 18. And it was just so hard to kind of reference. So by the time we get to an age where we understand 13 and 12 looking really young, it does. And it was appropriately cast in that way, which was really exciting to me. It was. And they were all so talented is the other thing is it's like, holy cow, they're 12 and 13 and they are this good they know those characters and they are those characters and one of the things I think a lot of people might not know is part of the challenge with casting a show that features younger characters is there's a lot of liability involved and and a lot of safety measures that need to go into place none of which is surprising or weird right you want to protect anybody who's under 18 so Mm -hmm. To see this cast that was just like clearly almost everybody's younger, it was so refreshing and one of those moments where you're like, wow, they did this. Why can't other shows do this? Yeah, it it was one of those things where I tried to start thinking back to other things that kind of represented teens and a lot of them had to skew significantly older, which honestly, I think then too, is that why I always thought like 13 or 14 looked so much older because it was cast so much older. But I think it is a valuable thing to be able to tell these stories of who are, again, as you go through it and watch, kids Mm -hmm. and have kids play them. And even some of the really younger kids, like the seven and eight-year-olds, they're appropriately cast and they're very, very good. Mm -hmm. And that's really impressive to me because it's it's very easy i always call it the ricky little ricky ricardo school of acting which is basically just small children shouting Mm -hmm. and that was acting at the time and now we're seeing them do really complex material and handle it really really well and i feel like they bring so much of their lived experience to it as they're living it like we Mm -hmm. we can remember what it's like to have friendship challenges when we were that age but it's not the same as literally living through those in your life and then taking that to the character that you're playing this real opportunity to be like okay I remember the emotional feeling of having a secret that was really big to me even if in today's time it's not a huge secret so I'm thinking here specifically of Stacey and and type 1 diabetes yeah and I saw some criticism of this and how it felt like dated. But when you're 12, you've just moved to a new place. And the reason that you've moved is because your reaction to having a diabetic seizure was filmed and spread throughout social media. And people teased you like, you don't want to share that part of you. And I just thought she handled that so well. And the emotional resonance of it was so powerful and so spot on for that age. 
yeah, to be able to kind of recognize that you're having an experience that's so different from yours of your classmates and trying to navigate how to handle that in a new place, knowing that it's gone poorly in an old place. Like, I'm not going to say it doesn't really matter what the secret is, but we've always, we've all felt some version of Mm -hmm. that where maybe you opened up to somebody, it didn't go the way you thought, and then it affected how you then treated yourself in new situations. And that part kind of felt a little bit more universal. And to see actors dealing with it in the way that they did was really impressive. And I loved how once she was able to share her secret and saw how much support she had in these new friends, that she was then able to be proud of having something that made her different. Like you saw her insulin pump. It was like jazzed up, you know, sparkly. She was proud of this. And there was something just so real in that particular storyline of that fear and then not just acceptance, but really honoring that difference in you. Yeah, I liked that. And I, this was one of the points where I remember when I first heard about the show coming out and kind of recognizing the time that it represented versus the time that it was now going to be existing in. It was a really elegant blend of some of the things that made the original show great and frankly, some of the thinking that was going around at the time, but it had some modern elements in it. So the fact that in the book's I think at this point, this was still 86 or 87. When that story happened to Stacy, it was people just spreading rumors. Mm -hmm. And in 2020, it was someone filming it and spreading it around and going viral for all the wrong reasons. And I think it was a really elegant blend of what the issue was at the time and how you would address it now, but not in a way that overshadowed how kids would really handle it. Yeah. And I, I remember, so when we did the annotated podcast, I talked to the executive producer on this Netflix series and talked with her about how she was going to modernize it, like what the thinking was and what she was saying got me really excited, but I couldn't in my head picture it. I'm thinking, you know, they're 12 years old. They're going to have cell phones. Are parents going to choose them over, you know, all the certified sitter agencies that are out there? And yet it was perfect. It married the two so well in a way that didn't feel like they weren't 12. It felt like they're 12. They have their cell phones. In one episode, Marianne gets her fancy cell phone taken away, and that's a whole storyline. And it's like, Mm -hmm. oh, yeah, that's a real thing that still happens. And that punishment for her is awful. She's cut off from her friends. And then the actual phone phone that they use for the Babysitter's Club for people to call in is a classic plug into the wall phone that Claudia got on Etsy, which was just brilliant. I I loved that. And that was one of those things that firmly anchored me within the timeline that they felt was absolutely ancient because I had that phone attached to my wall. So right. So (laughs) So right. Yeah. Like we didn't have them for very long. Cell phones came along not too long afterward. But yeah, the fact that I took that phone to college very firmly placed me within a timeline that was briefly uncomfortable, but then I refocused on what I was doing. (laughs) I just, it was very smart how they did that and still managed to make it age appropriate. Like I didn't feel like these girls were too mature, had access to too much information because their parents were still their parents and parenting them in whatever way they had to parent them. So in Marianne's story her dad is very strict and we see this play out over and over again until of course he reconnects with his long lost love and sort of lets go of some of that grip 
I thought, speaking of Marianne, she got such a great storyline in this series. Yeah, she really did. It was it was really kind of heartening to watch some of those things that I'd remembered really struggling with in the books and in some ways kind of identifying. I had strict parents as well and starting to see what that looked like and how they were going to be able to show the parent side of it. And again, in another side of like my age, watching how the parents dealt with it, I was like, okay, I can kind of understand where they're coming from. Whereas when I was 12, definitely wouldn't have had that level of understanding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I loved, so the bulk of, Marianne's storyline is sort of speaking up for herself and Mm -hmm. really coming into who she is and owning that part of her. And in that episode, I was blown away how they handled her opportunity to do this. Yeah, yeah. It was a wonderful, wonderful way to, and again, bring that that story to a place of currency because Mm -hmm. there is a similar storyline in the book that that um, episode kind of lends its storyline from. And they managed to make it current in a way that was really, really valuable and gave Marianne a wonderful altruistic opportunity to speak up, which felt so characteristic of her, but also kind of gave some of the younger watchers tools to deal with something that could very likely happen to them. Mm -hmm. And for listeners who haven't seen it, I don't think it's a spoiler to say that she is babysitting a trans child and needs to take her to the hospital because she's become sick. The doctors misgender her and she has to speak out and say that you need to respect her pronouns, you know, and see her as she is as opposed to what her chart says. And it's just this powerful moment of Marianne speaking up in the doctor and the nurse looking at her like, oh, you're right. I just loved it. I just loved it. Yeah. It was so perfect. And it's it's funny that you mentioned it being like a spoiler versus not being a spoiler. It does come up in a handful of the reviews in one of the Facebook groups that I'm in that follows a Babysitter's Club podcast. Someone mentioned, and I believe it was in all caps, like Marianne says trans rights, that's not a spoiler, that's a plug. Mm-hmm. And that felt so perfect to me because it kind of showed that this show has had to really balance this element of almost chastity that we grew up with it with but also like the currency of the moment that it's in. And that was a great example of the two coming together in this wonderful, wonderful way. And to then have Marianne's dad walk in and see her doing that. Mm-hmm. And he's then doing that calculus of she's more ready for the world than I expected. What do I then have to do? It all blended together beautifully. I'd like to add here too, and this is something I'd love to hear your thoughts on because I'm sure you have a lot of, of things to say. Marianne isn't a white girl in the casting and Dawn isn't a white girl in the casting. And when we were growing up with these books, Claudia was the only girl of color until Jesse comes along. Mm-hmm. And when they modernized it, this was an incredibly diverse cast and felt just like the world looks today. Yes. I And I do have a lot of thoughts about that. I think that they brought it to a place where it felt authentically brought into that place versus other shows that maybe we've watched or maybe other updates of things where it felt a little bit more haphazard but there's no reason to not diversify it in a world now where you would see that type of blend of people um, participating in things so even going down from the main characters being more multiracial as a unit than they would have been otherwise to the fact that the Johansons who were like a heterosexual white couple that had their own daughter it then turns into 
a same-sex couple with two mothers who adopted a child, and that gives you the kind of flexibility to bring in different types of charges that they would be dealing with. And it just felt, again, what Ava DuVernay's kind of talked about not being inclusive, but it just felt real. It Mm -hmm. felt like you're dealing with real people. Right. And that's, I, I think about this all the time when I was in my last job as a teen librarian. So I'm working with, I had younger teens at this point, so middle schoolers. And I looked around the room that I was having a program. There were 25 kids in there. And I looked around and I thought, I'm the only white person in here. And that was a real moment of like, one, do better for me. And two, why aren't the books and movies for this age group actually looking like what this age group looks like? And I feel Mm -hmm. like this adaptation, which was done by a woman of color, really got that. Yeah, I think it kind of recognizes the idea that And as somebody who, in addition to doing a good bit of YA reading, also watches a lot of kids' television, Mm -hmm. that type of diverse representation and really just a world that looks like the world that we live in is actually really common in kids' television. It's when you get to television for adults that it tends to stratify Mm. itself. So I really, really, really liked that they continued in that vein of it, wherein the world that kids are growing up in and the world that they need to learn how to function in looks like the world around us. Right. This wasn't some snow globe of a world that was shut off from like realities of what it is to be a kid today, what it is to be a human in the world today, even more broadly. It instead broke that glass and really allowed everything to be a part of it. Yeah. And even though it's getting such positive reviews online, there are people who are still having a bit of trouble with that. And the Mm -hmm. idea that it feels odd to have characters that you imagined a different way then show up on screen looking different from what you expected, which, to my point, I would then say, who then gets to see themselves as a part of this formative experience because somebody wanted to get creative with it? Yes. Um, when I do facilitation with groups all over the country when I travel, I talk about ideas about equity and justice and diversity and inclusion being, among other things, a failure of imagination. And I'm really glad that the creators of the show and everybody that wrote it and everybody that brought it to life didn't have that failure of imagination because so many more kids are going to be able to see themselves in these stories because of it. Bingo. I'm going to hit our second sponsor before we continue. We have so much more to say, but I don't (laughs) I love it. I was like, I'm looking at my list. I'm like, oh, we have so many great things to say. So our second sponsor is In the Neighborhood of True by Susan Kaplan. After her father dies, Ruth Robb and her family move in the summer of 1958 from New York City to Atlanta, the land of debutantes, sweet tea, and the Ku Klux Klan. In her new hometown, Ruth quickly figures out she can be Jewish or she can be popular, but not both. So Ruth decides to hide her religion to fit in. But when a violent hate crime brings the different parts of Ruth's life into sharp conflict, she will have to choose between all she's come to love about her new life and standing up for what she believes. That is In the Neighborhood of True by Susan Kaplan. And this is the second sponsor today that I have read and highly recommend. This is still, this book was set in 1958, but is like wildly timely and worth picking up right now. So let's talk, who haven't we talked about? What haven't we talked about that you want to hit before I bring up (laughs) something? The adults. I want to talk about the adults, but I want to hear what you have to say first. About the adults or any other parts of the book? Anything, anything. Hmm. I mean, I, I just keep coming back to the idea that the way that they 
balanced use of technology and kind of what childhood when babysitters mean everything to you looks like was really thoughtful. Um, And even then, I know one of the things that I worried about a lot was how is technology going to fit into this world? And they address it really quickly from the top. Um, in that first episode about how are they going to publicize things and Stacy's <laughs> talking about click-through rates and being able to put up ads on social media sites before they realize at 12 they're not allowed to mm-hmm. and it's not something that occurs to you right away and it's really kind of a almost a throwaway line but it does something really important it kind of lets you know that you're not going to be having to watch kids toggle their time between their phones and the intention that they're in that's not where these kids again are yet Mm -hmm. Um, and that was kind of valuable and then even going back to the finale when you see one of the younger characters at a bus stop and she's doing cat's cradle and i was like i can't think of a kid that would be doing that now but it makes complete sense so it kind of it fit in a really elegant way without making it feel so out of place in the world that we would live in where yes that technology exists and they have some relationship with it but it's not yet consumed them. And I wonder if they'll be able to cover that later on down the road as some of them do turn 13 and what that might then mean. I wondered, too, thinking a little bit about technology and, and how it does play into their lives, if that access to technology is part of why they were able to bring up and understand so many incredible social issues that felt 12. So. In the final two episodes, the last two episodes are two-parter. They go to camp and there is a moment where they realize not all the kids can tie-dye shirts because Mm -hmm. the shirts cost so much money at the camp store and Dawn starts a protest about income inequality that felt so perfectly 12 years old and yet so wise beyond her years. Yeah, I really, really liked a lot of pieces of that storyline. Like it brought in the idea of if you see something around you, you should speak up and be able to demonstrate around it. Um, The idea of her and Claudia being in the woods with the kids that couldn't afford the shirts and finding an alternative activity and that being its own form of protest. And Marianne ultimately deciding like the show that she thought was going to be the show could be scaled down to a dress rehearsal so people had choices and that being a form of protest. And I thought that was such a valuable thing is being able to talk about, yes, you as a kid have a voice and you should be able to use it, but you can use it in so many different ways. And that felt really valuable. And again, so timely as we think about everything that we're reckoning with as a country and how many different ways you can participate in being that change, that felt beautifully done to me. And I really enjoyed seeing the actresses kind of carry that out. And it felt just like, I don't know if you had summer camp experiences. I did, but I I didn't do like overnight camp. I just did day camp. And so much of that just like brought me back to that time in my life and hating certain things I saw or experienced with other kids and wanting to do something about it, but not having any any idea what that might be. Whereas these girls took that and then ran with it and did a thing, which is awesome. Yeah, it was it was really fun to watch and think about had I been in that type of situation in any of the camp types of things, what would I have done? Um, And then even kind of thinking about now that you are in a position where you have those types of opportunities, what are you doing about it now? Mm -hmm. So to make somebody in their 30s reflect about how they're using their privilege, that was a valuable kind of check to be able to have put in place. I was that kid. And and this is, I think, why that storyline really resonated. I was that kid who couldn't afford that stuff growing up. And Mm. like summer camp was the big spend. But again, 
only day camp because we couldn't afford the overnight camp. And I just had that moment of like, man, I remember not being able to buy something at the canteen, which was our, you know, like summer camp shop every day. Whereas some kids could buy like multiple things every day just because we didn't have the money for that. Yeah. And I would have never thought of being in that position of like doing something about it other than feeling sad about it. And so to see the feelings be real there and then yet turn into action, I feel like I don't want to say it's inspiring, but I think it's going to give a lot of kids who pick up and watch this show like the understanding they have the power to to speak up and to make the change and to demand better for everybody. Well, and I think that the way it was responded to also, and this maybe will carry us into our conversation about the adults, is that some of the adults weren't ready to hear that. Mm -hmm. But then over time, as they kept demonstrating and kept talking about what it meant to them, they did manage to change some minds and have some things kind of rethought and ultimately they were able to enact that sort of change. So having it be responded to realistically, yeah, sometimes you're going to bring those things up and the adults you talk to aren't going to want to hear it. But as you keep demonstrating and keep letting them know what you need, it could eventually lead to a point where people do kind of relent and give you the opportunity to put in some of those changes. So I felt the response was pretty realistic as well. um, And that was valuable to have play out the way it did. I love that. And I love thinking too about how the adults interacted with the kids. There were a lot of adults in this story, but the setup of parents and co-parents and step-parents and single parents was so wide and vast, which was great. So was there a single family that had mom and dad? Claudia's family had mom and dad, but then uh, Mimi as well. They had their grandmother living with them, but all of them were so different and yet they were family. And I was really... I'm going to start by saying I was really uncomfortable in episode one with how much of a Christie I realized I was as a kid (laughs) and how much of a Christie I still am now, like down to some of the mannerisms. It was painful to watch that. That's so funny. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, it makes you uncomfortable. And then you're like, okay, this is hard to watch knowing that. And yet at the same time, like, all right, I wasn't the only kid that felt that way or was bossy like that or. I never spoke to my mom the way that she spoke to her mom, but I always Mm -hmm. wanted to. Um, (laughs) So her parents, her dad left. And so it's her and her three brothers, two who are older, one who is younger. And her mom put so much responsibility on her as the only girl in the family, even though her mom also teaches her about feminism and how unfair it is that that happens. Yeah. And there was a lot in there about how she then pushed back against her mom all the time and used this idea of feminism a little bit as a weapon against her. She did in some ways. I remember a couple different points where she is talking to her mom and bringing up some of the things that she's taught her and says, hey, this is what we talked about and that's not what you're doing. And I think that in its own right had a little bit of a lesson to it about how we kind of understand the way that we could or should behave versus how it actually ends up being enacted when we're pushed to do those things. But also the idea that feminism is the opportunity to choose between those two Mm -hmm. things and having the opportunity to not be pushed in one direction or another. Um, So that was kind of interesting to watch play out. And of course, some of that's generational. So it was nice to kind of see that how they put that in this way. And let's pause for a moment 
I, I don't know if you had this experience. I had this experience. It was so strange seeing Alicia Silverstone playing a parent. I was not ready for it. I, she was a teenager when I was the age of the babysitters and felt so mature then. And yet here she is as an adult. And yes, she has some immaturities, but she felt very much like an adult to me. She did. And it's funny because at some point, like I remembered right before Clueless, she was in, oh gosh, it must have been a Lifetime movie. Maybe it was like a smaller independent movie, like about being a babysitter. And that kind of flashed. And I was like, there's no, it was like one of those gentle mystery thriller type ones. I was like, they're not going to reference that. There's no way. But like having that mind reference of her as a babysitter and then watching her kind of be part of this group of parents that raised these babysitters was profoundly weird (laughs) there was a slight nod to it at the tail end when christy talks about her mom being clueless and Mm -hmm. me watching it in my house out loud i'm just like i get it (laughs) there were a lot of little moments like that i just i loved and i love that her mom was so her mom is going to get remarried in the show and there will be a blended family but she's marrying this super rich guy And his name is Watson. And the only thing, every time he came on the screen, he made me cringe because he was so weird. Yeah, he was like that nerdy guy that's like earnestly trying to do it. And it's probably wholly authentic. Mm -hmm. But like as a kid, you're just like, you can grow up and stay that way the whole time. Like it's very, very weird, I would imagine. Yeah. And he's so rich. Oh, I can't. That was the thing that was like cracking me up. And, And also like, where did he get that money? He had so much money. Yeah, they never really say. And I love that Christy notices this, but like, isn't taken by it. It's not a thing that can buy her at all. She's not. Mm -hmm. And she she brings this up to her mom, too. She almost accuses her mom of of wanting that stability because he has the money. And this was an opportunity for her mom to explain to her that like, no, she loves this guy because of who he is and that she's not marrying him for his money, that she's not going against her feminist ideals by doing that and instead like really see something in him. I'll say I don't, but I also don't know him beyond like how he was portrayed on the show. Yeah, I mean, even when you go into the books, it's not super clear like who he is beyond being that person that kind of comes in and is the stepfather figure eventually. So it's I don't think it's meant for us to kind of see that appeal. I think you're just supposed to trust that whatever is happening with the adults is working the way that it Mm -hmm. should be. And I will say, one thing I did like about him is how ridiculously supportive he was. He was the first person to call to book a babysitter. He was their PR person, even though he didn't have that title, even though he didn't have to. He was telling everybody about how great those babysitters were. I loved that at the end where a couple people call in and they're like, Watson referred us. And I was like, oh, Mm -hmm. I love it. That's so sweet. And it was just, it was the smart way for him to kind of say, all right, Christy's not quite on board. What can I do in an, again, in an authentic way to let her know that I'm on the right side of this. And he got right to that point that this thing that she loves so much and is trying to get off the ground, I can be helpful there. Mm -hmm. And sometimes the support that, you can give to somebody isn't the loud, flashy, give them things, but rather those quiet moments of, you know, hey, use them for babysitters. And it's like, that can mean the world to somebody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it was it was a really nice way of kind of seeing that support and her finding a way to endear herself to him and vice versa, in a thoughtful way. Trying to think if there were any other adult things that 
felt worth bringing up. You know what? When we said mom and dad, Stacy also had a mom and dad who were married. Yes, which for the duration of this first season holds. It doesn't later on in the books. And I'm should we get additional seasons? I'd be curious to see how they deal with that. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, that was kind of part of it. But it was it was a very small. They weren't they weren't super involved in the storyline the same way that Christie's parents were or Mimi in Claudia's story. Who, who I was like holding my breath. I couldn't remember when we lose Mimi in the series. Yeah. And I was like, no, it can't be in the show we're watching. And it wasn't. But I loved, loved, loved the moment where Mimi's in the hospital. Claudia and her sister Janine are sitting together in the waiting room. And Janine has been weird the whole time. And Claudia mm-hmm. can't stand her sister. And I'll agree, I couldn't stand her either. So they're having this moment. They're talking about Mimi. And Janine brings up the Japanese internment camp that, yeah. that Mimi had lived through. And Claudia is just like shocked that this is a thing that even happened. And as a viewer, I was blown away how this was brought into the story in such a powerful way and a way that for young viewers might be the first time they ever hear about it. Yeah, it was it was one of those things where, again, too, there was that blend of what existed in the books and then kind of very elegantly tying it into what is happening today because there's a point where Claudia says I can't believe they were doing that and Janine says I can't believe they're doing that now and it's one of those things that it's not like it's a wink to the camera but not an overly like oh nudge in the ribs like we're saying something very important but just it's real and it continues to be real and that was emotional to watch and an already emotional point in the story Mm mm-hmm mm-hmm That, yeah, the writing in this, right? The little lines that got in there that were just like, this is still going on today. This is not history. This is modern life. But it didn't feel like a message, which I think too often we think young people need, that they need the message. They don't. They just need to understand that it still happens. And this is their opportunity to see that and react to that. Yeah. And again, to that point, I think it's one of those things where it gently introduces the conversation. And because of the relationship that these kids on screen have with their parents, a kid who maybe doesn't understand that reference can go to their parents and say, what did that mean? And it can start a conversation. And I think so much about all the things that are changing in the world and people continually worry about how to talk to their kids about it. And I think this show models having the type of relationship with your kids where you can have those tough conversations. It's really sort of this show that's perfect for kids that age that they will love. And yet it's also perfect for adults who are thinking about, well, how do I parent these kids? Or how do I be a role model for these kids if they're not a parent? How can I live the values that are important to me in a way that young people know it's okay to also live their values and to speak out about these things they care about and to really implement change in their life right where they're at. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There was one more thing about Claudia I wanted to bring up and this, this scene was just like, it gutted me. So she wants to go to the Halloween dance. She's going as Tippihedron, which is a riot. I loved it. It was perfect. It was so perfect. And her parents tell her, so she's terrible at school, still terrible at spelling. If you pay attention to 
the first episode when Christy opens her email, you see how terribly Claudia spells. And you also see that there's an email from Anna Martin in there, which like clever little winks. Oh, I missed that. And we'll be going back. (laughs) It's in there. That was like the first thing I noticed and said, said something. I was like, that's so clever. So Claudia is not doing well. And needs to pass her math test to get permission from her parents to go to the stance that she really wants to go to. She doesn't do well on the test. And Stacy offers her the opportunity to use her test and like show her parents that she did well, that she got, it was like a 93 or something. So not a perfect Mm -hmm. score, but good enough to be like, her parents would be proud. So Mimi is very proud of her. Her parents are proud of her. And then her parents ask to see the test. And it's this moment where she goes in her backpack. She has her test and she has Stacy's test. And she's looking at them both. And she has this big moment of, do I lie and get the thing I want? Or do I tell the truth and get the respect for being honest with my parents and, and losing out on the thing I really want? And you just see her. There's no words. You just see her have this moment. And she decides to be honest with her parents, who obviously are disappointed. She doesn't get to go to the dance. But this moment was just, like I said, it got punched to me because it was so real. And so like, oh, you don't want to disappoint your parents. And that was more important to you than going to this dance. Yeah, it was it was nice in the sense of I can see a version of that where there's this elaborate voiceover kind of talking through the decision or a version of it where it becomes a little bit played more for the big lesson with the leading letters capitalized. But instead, it's just this small calculus pun recognized that she does and says, I'm going to do the right thing here. And it's a small moment, but it does something really big. It does. And I feel like that is the perfect sort of way to encapsulate the show as a whole. These small moments that just really explode these big issues in ways that it doesn't feel like a lesson show. It doesn't feel like, and and this is no disrespect, uh, doesn't feel like Full House, where at the end you get your lesson. I love that show growing up. But this is, you learn the lesson and yet like you're still imperfect and you're going to be loved and cared for for that imperfection. Yeah, like I I love a good sitcom. Uh, even if you're taking it into soapy territory, love Degrassi. You will find few people that love it more than I do. But this is doing something very different. It's staging these issues different. It's addressing them differently. And again, too, I think the relationship with the parents is also really integral to that piece. So it's like you said, it's not saccharine. It's just it's heartwarming in a way that kind of reminds you of what you needed when you were a kid and what you're for me, even though not somebody having with kids or having to plan kids wants to kind of know that something like that is out there for them. Mm-hmm. One last thing I wanted to bring up, and then obviously I'll open it to you to hit anything else you want to talk about. Can we talk about Karen? Yeah, let's talk about Karen. <laughs> so Karen is the eventual stepsister of Christy, and she's what, seven, I think? Yeah, she's seven. She is the weirdest character in the whole series. And yet, she's a seven-year-old and captures what it is to be a weirdo seven-year-old. Yeah. I remember growing up, so she has her own series of books, too. I remember growing up and reading them and always thinking she was the most annoying person ever. 
And I don't know if that was actually the case or if the show kind of gave her a better character arc, but I loved her here. I mean, I think it's a both and in the sense that she had to be that gentle kind of annoying that Christy wasn't always willing to dive into because that was kind of central to their dynamic, but also likable enough that when she got a series of her own, you would read those books. And I did. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But I think the opportunity now to just let her be so weird and so odd and so hard to understand but that being central to who she is that was wonderful i really 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 liked it and again to the testament to having kids act well but actor who pulled it off was wonderful like it never felt over the top it never felt like she was forcing it it felt like this is who you could run into on any given day, just playing outside in the neighborhood. Well, because kids are weird; they haven't gotten kids are weird. They haven't gotten to that point where they're in middle school and are suddenly self monitoring everything. And I thought that that dynamic of showing this kid who like doesn't have self consciousness about herself and will like throw a funeral for her doll, uh, matched with somebody like Christy, who is very controlled and very, you know has to have that power and is super conscious of everything going on with her and around her. I thought that that dynamic was just so smart. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really well done in the sense of, I think when you think about adaptations like this, you start thinking about what are the parents going to be like? And will they match the energy of the kids? Will the actresses that they cast as my main favorite character do the job that I would like them to do? Oddly enough, Like, it feels like a weird thing to worry about as an adult, but will my favorite babysitter be accurately represented? (laughs) But you don't always think about it in terms of some of the secondary characters, and I think this is one where they had a little bit of freedom, they used it, and it paid off. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've seen a lot of the um, commentary about just how great she was, and she she was on Twitter. Um, I was doing, like, a Twitter search last night, just sort of reading some of the feedback. Obviously, her parents run her Twitter account because she's not 13, but Mm -hmm. she was just so adorable and loved all the feedback she was getting. And I was like, you are amazing and you're going to have a heck of a career. I really hope so, because she's something special in this. She really is. Is there anything you have on your list of things you wanted to talk about? I want to talk about Mark Evan Jackson. You'll have to remind me who that is. Okay, so I'll go back a little bit. Okay. So I listen to a lot of podcasts, work with a podcast company. So day in, day out, I'm usually listening to things. Mm-hmm. And Mark Evan Jackson, who was on The Good Place and also oh, yeah. was on Brooklyn yeah, yeah, yeah. Nine-Nine. Okay, yeah. yeah. So he talks, there's a throwaway line where someone mentions that at some point during one of the Brooklyn Nine-Nine seasons, he was in Vancouver filming for the Babysitter's Club series. So it became this minor news drop that Mark Evan Jackson, who we know from these other characters, was going to be on the Babysitter's Club. But he would not say who he was playing. So of the like group of people that I talked to about the show on a fairly regular basis that were brought together by a Babysitter's Club podcast, there was this big long thread of speculation, like 80, 90 comments of who is Mark Evan Jackson Mm going to be on the show. And as soon as it came up on the show. I was like, he's going to be Richard Spear. He's Marianne's dad if I have ever seen anybody <laughs> play it. And then, like, even right up to, like, the weeks before, had no idea, and then watched him pop up on the second episode, screamed in my house to no one. But the type of energy that he brought to that from all the other roles that we kind of know him from was 
perfect. And even if you see him talk about it, like on Instagram or on Twitter, like he's so proud to be a part of it and is just so supportive of these girls who he got to play like surrogate parent to essentially. And it was just a really nice additional thing to see an actor who I enjoy in so many other capacities, just really put the best version of that character together and kind of fulfill some of the things that I'd been imagining for so long. He tucks his shirt in tightly. And yes. <laughs> that's yes. a line from the show. But um, yeah, I so I'm not super familiar with many other shows or actor names. And yet I was like, he looks familiar. He looks familiar. And my husband came in and he watched an episode or two. And he's like, oh, yeah, he's from The Good Place. And I was like, that's that's where I've seen him. I have seen mo- most of The Good Place. And I loved his character. I really thought he brought what could have been a really wooden character into a really dynamic one and one who is not just grieving, but who is so fearful of the world and fearful of allowing himself to be part of the world. Yeah, I think that reading the books and kind of remembering how Richard's written, it was just this tight hold on Marianne that especially as a kid, I understood in that it was happening to me because again, my parents were a little bit strict, but I didn't understand where came from Mm -hmm. and I think that through very small moments because it's not dominating the storyline really in any point you start to understand why he is the way he is Um, and I think that he played those scenes really well and then kind of that point where he's starting to try to let himself be a little bit looser to reconnect with Sharon and like that struggle being so funny to watch like (laughs) especially with the makeover there's an episode where Stacey and Claudia make over Marianne's room and they're talking to Richard about it, and there's a point where they go, have you heard of Queer Eye? And he's like, yeah, wait, they're not here, are they? And it's just a small, hilarious moment that he plays perfectly, but also is absolutely the fear that Richard Spear would have, that someone was going to come in and violently change everything around him. And it was that referential Netflix piece, it was a small bit of comedy for him, and then just so perfect for what was going on. I love that moment, and I love to, when he walks into that room, and realizes why he's so attached to it as it is Mm -hmm. and and that gives so much depth to why he is sort of hesitant even though he's not saying she can't do it but then that also pairs with how Marianne feels after the room is made over the room is awesome when it's done being made over and yet it's clear something is off for Marianne too she's not wildly in love with it and it's a similar reason something is off and it has to do with what her father sort of felt about that room and and what it represented. Yeah. And again, I think it's a testament to the way that this show handles some of those things. Like on Full House, that would have merited like a three to four minute sit down with sentimental music playing behind (laughs) it. On Degrassi, it would have been something where there's like a shouting fight between father and daughter. But for this, it was just them both recognizing the same thing and then it ultimately getting resolved in a way that makes them both happy. But it wasn't the point of what was happening. It was just a nice end result to something that they had both realized in a lot of ways separately. Mm-hmm. <sighs> any other any other comments? Uh, I mean, I want more. It's yeah. going to be really hard to get at this point because A, no one really knows how we're filming, what, when, and B... The disadvantage of having this cast authentically is that these girls are developing very quickly. Mm -hmm. So to be able to get it in time that it still feels authentic, that window is so small. But I really want to see what they do with some of the other material that comes up later in the book. So I hope we get more. I really do. 
Me too. And I hope, knock on wood, that we have something like what they did with, I think it was Queer Eye, where they filmed a whole bunch and like yeah. just had it sitting there. So like they do have, you know, 10 more episodes, but we'll get them at some point when we need them. Because I feel like this dropped at the time. We all really needed it. It did. It was just a nice thing to carry you into the weekend. Um, so between that and Hamilton, like everyone's having a good time this weekend mm-hmm. and it was great. And like everybody was getting along over their television choices this weekend, you know? Very much so. Very much so. Like there were no bad choices to be made, really. Right, right. And that doesn't happen very often. Nope, sure doesn't. Well, I think I think that's our show. Certainly we could talk for like four more hours, but... Don't test me. I really would. I really would. I know you would. I know you would. And I would love talking with you for four more hours. We would end up turning it back on and commentating through the entire thing. But (laughs) I wanted to do this episode in part because I tweeted a little bit about watching it after I watched it. And the number of people who were like, oh, I was thinking about it, but I didn't know. I hope that you're convinced to watch it. I really, really do. Whether or not you have any sort of attachment to the book series doesn't matter. This stands on its own. And it just, it feels good. It is feel good viewing. It really does. It's it's a nice hit of nostalgia if it's something that you've watched before or are familiar with through the books or the movie or the other TV series. But it's also just a nice way to go back to a place that feels, again, grounded in reality, but also a little bit simpler and a little bit warmer if you're not familiar with it. So I think either way, it's worth your time. Yeah. Well, thank you, everybody, for tuning in this week. As always, you can leave feedback about the show on Apple Podcasts that lets us know how we're doing and helps other people find us. Thanks again to today's sponsors for helping make the show possible. You can follow me, Kelly Jensen, as Hey Kelly Jensen on Instagram. And Amma, where can people follow and find you? So I'm at Amma Marfo, A-M-M-A-M-A-R-F-O on Twitter and Instagram. And you can also check out some of my writing and comedy criticism at theinterrobang.com, like the compound (laughs) punctuation mark. And I will link to all that in the show notes so you can follow her and check her out. I'm so lucky I got to meet her years ago at an event and just... So excited I can bring you back to talk about the Babysitter's Club. I feel like every time I need to talk about the Babysitter's Club, I'm like, I know who would talk about it with me and always say something so insightful and thoughtful and be funny about it as well. Happy to serve in that role for as long as you will have me. That's the truth. (laughs) We will talk to you all again in two weeks and Eric will be back with a bonus episode of the podcast next week. Until then, happy reading. Happy reading.